0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. We are in a series, and actually week five in a seven-week series that we're calling The Way. We're exploring what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so let me sort of give you some context for where we've been and where we are, and then where we're heading tonight because I think it'll be helpful as we get into the scriptures together. See, in week one, we said that a disciple is somebody who lives in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. There's somebody following Jesus. Uh, they're, they're people who are learning to live in God's kingdom under Jesus' reign. And a disciple is somebody who has three goals for their life. Do you remember what these are? To Be with Jesus. You can say them with me if you remember. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Five o'clock service for the win. Great job. Great job. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And tonight, we are on part two of a two-part message on becoming like Jesus. And last week, we tried to lay some foundation just to say, uh, answer the question, who are we? Human beings, who are we as Jesus followers? And what we said was that we're the, that, that in the same way that the Father's affirmation over His Son Jesus of beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, that it's the same affirmation as God's children that He gives us today. Uh, the scriptures would say, Oh, what love the Father has for us, that He would call us the children of God. That is what we are. He's down on us. And last week we said, before you did anything good, and after you've done anything bad, you are still loved by your heavenly father. That is the starting place, friends. That is the starting place. And I, I'd invite you to write this down as we begin our time together tonight. God's love and grace find us as we are, but they never leave us as we are. God's love and grace find us as we are, but never leave us as we are see see when God pursues you and he 's pursuing you right now this evening, when He pursues you with that affirmation of beloved, that affirmation is designed not just to be a warm fuzzy, not just to be something you celebrate, although it is that it 's designed to be fuel for for change for becoming a, a different kind of person for becoming a disciple but but discipleship requires change. It requires that we're a little bit different than we are when we first meet Jesus. But can we all agree that change is difficult? We all long to change. We all want to change, but change is really, really difficult. It's why if you go onto Amazon, remember when we used to have those things called bookstores? Okay. Yeah. You could go into a bookstore. I know if you're a little bit younger, you'll, this will blow your mind, but there used to be like physical locations that had books in them. And then you could go there and buy books. Okay, I'm just kidding. Just, I'm just messing with you. But yeah, you can go onto Amazon and you can look at the bestseller list, right? And you'll see a number of books there that talk about changing and changing our habits. You can find books that were bestsellers like The Power of Habit by Charles Dweig. You could find a book called Atomic Habits, the brilliant book on how to make change, a, a book that just was released entitled Tiny Habits. Uh, there, his suggestion in the book is that if you wanna make changes, start really, really small. For example, if you wanna start flossing your teeth, just floss one tooth tonight. Start there and then go to bed and feel good about yourself, right? So, So that's his proposal, make little tiny changes. But all of these books show us that As human beings, we want change. We we want to grow. We want to improve. We want to change. But change is really, really difficult. I mean, how many of us have have started either a workout plan or a diet plan and not quite seen it to the end? Anybody want to say, yeah, yeah, don't elbow anybody near you. But yeah, I, I definitely have. It was interesting. I read this study recently where... A a number of doctors had done bypass surgery on on some of their patients, and they told these patients, listen, if you don't change the way you behave, the way that you eat, the way that you exercise, you're going to be right back your same surgery, again, if you're lucky. Well, they went back and they studied how many of these people, and what they found was that only 9% of people actually changed, because it's easier to get stuck, isn't it, than it is to change. It's easier to get stuck whether it's in a bad habit, in a mindset, in our anger, in an unhealthy pattern. Getting stuck is really, really easy. And let me give you two reasons that that, that's just true for us as human beings. The first is biological. It's easy to get stuck because your brain actually is wired to automate things and to just click them into automatic, okay? For example, how many of you have thought about breathing since you got here? And yet, I'm pretty sure most of you are, okay? Some of you, I'm not so sure, but most of you, yeah, you're, you're breathing, right? Uh, um, or last time you, when you got out of your car and walked over into this courtyard, did you think about putting one foot instead in front of the other? No, we just do it. Um, Some scientists would suggest that you automate over 50% of what you do. Your brain wants to automate because it saves energy. It's one of the ways that it can be uber uber productive. But the challenge is when you want to change, it makes change really, really difficult because those mental maps are well worn and doing something different is really, really hard. Let me give you an example. How many of you have gotten into the car to go somewhere and you automatically started driving to work? Anyone? Yeah, absolutely. Because our brains are wired to make things easy on us. So they go, I know what you want to do when you get into the car. You want to drive to work. And you're like, no, I don't. I want to go on vacation, not to work. Right? The second reason change is difficult is Theological. As followers of Jesus, I think sometimes the way that we present the gospel to people is this is a one-time decision rather than a whole life invitation. And so we present, actually, we present what is the wedding ceremony as the entire marriage. We present the beginning point of the journey as the epitome of the whole journey. So many of us, we start following Jesus with no expectation that he actually wants to do anything inside of us that changes us. We believe that his grace finds us exactly where we are. We just have no paradigm to understand that he doesn't want to leave us there. And so we have biology that pushes back against us and we have theology that pushes back against us. And I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great 20th century German theologian, captured it really, really well term, cheap grace, in his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he said this, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, grace without discipleship, grace without any sort of invitation to change and to become different kinds of people. But what if change is possible? What if it's possible to become a, a different kind of person? Whether it's possi- what if it's possible to learn to live from a, a different kind of, of center with a different kind of spirit? What if it's possible to let go of your anger rather than onto it? What if it's possible to forgive the people around you rather than cling to bitterness? What if it's possible to live in purity rather than in lust? What if it's possible to live generously rather than clutching and grasping at your stuff? What if it's possible to live the way that Jesus is inviting us to live? What if if it's possible? Will you open with me to Luke chapter 6? Because in this sermon that we're going to pick up, Jesus is giving, we're going to sort of parachute right into the middle of the sermon. Jesus is going to talk about change. He's going to talk about the kinds of people that he's inviting us to become. The, the context of this sermon is often it's called the, the Sermon on the Plain or Matthew's counterpart to this content is the Sermon on the Mount. My guess is if you're familiar with some of Jesus' teaching, you've, you've studied these sermons a little bit. But I want you to try to listen to it afresh tonight. We're going to start in verse 39 and listen to what Jesus said. Luke writes, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Quick time out. Here's what Jesus is saying. Every single life is being led by someone or something. You have some sort of narrative you're believing, some person or some group or some way of interacting that you're following. The question isn't whether or not you have somebody or something leading your life. The question is, where is that someone or thing leading you? Is it leading you toward a pit or is it leading you to life? And Jesus continued, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher, will be like his teacher. So Jesus is expecting that you and I, as his followers, would view him as our teacher. Some translations, that was the first century term for this type of an instructor, this type of a person. And listen to his expectation in verse 46. He said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you to do? As your teacher and as your Lord, my expectation is that you would actually do and put into practice what I tell you to do. To not do so would be like throwing on a YouTube video of a great workout and going over to your freezer, getting a carton of ice cream out of it, going and sitting down on your couch and watching this amazing workout take place and just going, wow, I mean, they're like really working it and I'm really working it, right? Watching it take place, workout ends, and you go back and you put the ice cream in the fridge and you say, wow, that was a wonderful workout, wasn't it? And Jesus, that's the sort of the picture Jesus is saying. No, 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 he doesn't want to be a hype man. He wants to be your rabbi, your teacher, and your Lord. And that's really, really important, you guys. Really important. Just as teacher or rabbi, and not just as Lord, but as both teacher and Lord. In fact, would you write this down? Becoming like Jesus requires, it requires that we trust him as both Lord and rabbi, Lord and rabbi. See, if we trust Jesus as Lord, but not rabbi, we may bow in reverence, but we won't train to take on his character. On the other hand, if we trust Jesus as rabbi, but not as Lord, we will have empty moralism, but not allegiance and not adoration. No, no, no. The fire is in the fulcrum of where those two things meet to view Jesus and receive Jesus and receive Jesus as Lord and as teacher. To say to him, I believe that you are God and worthy of my allegiance. And I believe that you also are brilliant. And I want to live my life in your way. See, Jesus's goal, if you look at verse 40 again, is that everyone would be fully trained and that they would be like their teacher, be like him. So the question you may be asking yourself is, well, what is Jesus like? like? And if you go back into the sermon, just up a little bit, you'll start to see. Starting in verse 27, Jesus teaches his followers, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Verse 29, when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. Verse 30, give to those who ask, be generous. Verse 31, do to others what you'd want them to do to you. Verse 36, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Verse 37, don't judge people or you too will be judged. Verse 38, forgive those who wrong you. And all of that leads up to Jesus saying, I want you to learn to become like me. So let me ask you, would you look up at me for just a moment? Do you believe that's possible? Do you believe that's possible? Or is it like the 1992 commercial that Gatorade put out that had the catchphrase, be like Mike? Anybody remember those commercials? I remember watching that commercial and thinking to myself, even as a teenage kid going, well, I don't know that that's possible. I'd love to be like Mike, but Mike is six foot six and like ridiculously athletic. And I'm not either of those things, right? Like I'd love to be like Mike. And is is that the way that we're supposed to feel as we read through this list of like, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and turn the other cheek. Are we supposed to read it and go, well, Jesus just has his head in the clouds because I could never do that. Here's the kicker, guys. You may not believe that you can be like Jesus, but Jesus believes that you can become more like him. And he wants to empower you to do that. But if we keep reading through this sermon, there's gonna be two things that he immediately addresses that he knows are challenges for you and I on the journey of transformation. Starting in verse 41, listen to the way he continues. He said this, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but you do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in brother's eye. Hypocrisy when used in this term, this way, this turn of time, but we actually have Jesus to thank for that. Did you know that? People didn't use the word and the phrase in this way before the teachings of Jesus. Before Jesus, a hypocrite was simply an actor. There was no negative connotation associated with it. I mean, can you imagine if at Academy Awards this year, they gave the hypocrite of the year award? That's actually a little bit too ironic, right? I mean, a, like that actually might fit, right? <laughs> That's the way that the word was used before Jesus. But when Jesus uses it, he says, no, no, no. Like the whole, the whole world is your stage. You're wearing a mask. You're playing a part. You're pretending. And in this context, notice the way that the challenge to fight against hypocrisy follows right after the invitation to become like a rabbi. And Jesus knows that one of the main holdups that we will, embrace, we will face in a journey of transformation is when we pretend to be something that we're not because Jesus only meets us where we actually are, not where we wish we were. So the invitation, and I'd invite you to write this down, is to, to fight hypocrisy, to challenge ourselves to be honest and to trust that Jesus will meet us in the mass of life. He continues in that same vein, and I think just addresses the other side of the coin. He says this in verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For, each, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And in the context of what Jesus has already taught in this sermon, I think what he's asking you and me to do is to look at the fruit of our life, to look at our relationships, to look at our attitude, to look at our habits, to look at the fruit of our life, and then ask some really honest questions about what must be going on on the inside if we're bearing the kind of fruit we're bearing on the outside. He's simply calling us to, and I'd invite you to write this down, to pursue self-awareness, to be the kinds of people who are willing to name our place so that we can then start to move forward because if we can't name where we are today, we will not get to where Jesus is leading us tomorrow. To say it another way, when it comes to transformation, ignorance is not bliss is our best friend, maybe admitting that in all the broken relationships that may, are surrounding in your life, that you're a common denominator in all of them. It may be admitting there's some anger that I'm just holding on to, that there's some bitterness that I can't let go of. It may be admitting, gosh, I just have a tendency to compare myself to all these other people, and that's just shutting down my growth as a follower of Jesus. But in admitting all of that, can I invite you to admit something else? In admitting the areas that we fall short and the areas we still have to grow, can we also become really, really good at admitting that we are the beloved of God? About claiming that, about naming that, about saying that, that, even just preaching to our own souls that when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords looks at us, He calls us His own. He loves us so much, and His good word and blessing and favor is over your life right now. You are His beloved. And that's the foundation underneath us as we start to name areas that we still have to grow. And without that foundation, we will never be willing to be honest because we'll have to protect an identity that we are still building on our own. But when we're able to receive our identity from him as the beloved, we are then free to name areas that we're still falling short and that we are being challenged to grow. So you might be wondering, okay, well, Ryan, that's all fine and great, but how does that actually take place in the life of a disciple well look back again at verse 40 with me i think this is a key verse and i'd invite you to underline it or star it in your own bible or just tap it on you version and highlight it whatever you want to do verse 40 a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone when he's fully trained fully trained would be like his teacher. So Jesus's expectation is that you and I would become more and more like training. In the Greek, it's the word katarizo. Will you say that with me? Katarizo. Yeah, and it literally means to adjust or align into good working order. For a chef, it means adding ingredients until they taste the dish and they go, oh yeah, that's what this is supposed to taste like. For a person though, training looks a little bit different. It's what the major league baseball players are doing in um, Arizona and Florida right now. They're at spring training, aren't they? They're trying to get back in playing shape. They're honing their skills. And do you know what Jesus and the apostle Paul say? The spiritual life isn't all that different. Listen to the way that the apostle Paul wrote it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses seven through eight. He wrote, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. That, I, I think that verse should blow our minds more than it actually does what Paul said is that you and I right now today can train for godliness and the way that we train today for godliness will benefit us into eternity. Because the only thing you take into eternity is the pull that we, be, we carry with us. And so the Apostle Paul's saying, oh, that's of the utmost importance, you guys. Like the, we, we can't look this over and we can't go sort of halfway on it. The invitation is to go all in. And so you might be wondering, okay, well, Ryan, that's all, all fine and good training, but what type of training should we do? We're we talking like push-ups in the morning or what are we talking here? Um, great question. For thousands and thousands of years, the church has been utilizing what we call spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines as a methodology for training. And I'd invite you to write this down. That spiritual practices help us posture ourselves to be transformed by the Spirit. That's what a spiritual practice is. A spiritual practice is something that helps us posture ourselves to be transformed by the Spirit. Practices are ways that we partner with God. They align us with the power of the spirit that is already present. I think a, a word picture grasp what we mean by this. So imagine that your life is a sailboat. A spiritual practice is a way that you raise the proverbial flag of your life or sail of your life in order to catch the wind of the spirit that is already blowing. A spiritual practice in and of itself does nothing but it postures us to receive from God that which he is already pouring out. And I love the analogy of a sailboat because your life isn't a speedboat. This isn't something that we control and that we do on our own and that we muscle up and get done. No, it's a posture that we can do in order to participate with God in becoming the kinds of people that he's inviting us to become. None of the practices are requirements. They're all invitation. And Jesus would say, what kind of person do you want to become? Then what kind of training do you need to do? On the back of the bulletin outline that you got when you walked in, there's a list of 12 practices. I'd invite you to just turn that over and look at those with me. These are just a starting point. Really, the possibilities are endless when it comes to training to become more and more like Jesus. I'll talk about that in a moment. But on the left, you have practices of engagement. These are things that we can do in order to put the sale of our life up. Things like reading the Bible, studying scripture, memorizing scripture. I mean, this is why we have Bible classes. We teach people how to read the scriptures. We teach people uh, books of the Bible. We incorporate people into small groups so that they can do this tip, declaring the greatness of God. It's a way we're transformed. Prayer, going to God and petition, going to God and just being with him. Accountability and reflection, opening our lives to each other and to God. Sharing meals together, that's a spiritual practice. Anybody wanna say amen to that? Amen. Serving. And then on the other side, you have uh, practices of abstinence. This is where you don't do something for a time in order to create space that you expect god to fill so things like silence and solitude or simplicity fasting sabbath secrecy this is where we uh, don't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing bless somebody but don't say anything or submission this is where you practice the discipline of not have, don't elbow anybody it's not nice right that's just the beginning though I mean, really, the possibilities are endless. I mean, if you were to come to me after this service and say, Ryan, like what type of training should I do um, in order to push back against being an impatient person? Here's what I might suggest. I might suggest that you get in your car tomorrow around 7.30 and you drive down Bear Valley Road. Oh my goodness. And here would be my encouragement to you as you sit in that God-forsaken traffic, to just discipline your soul to delight in the Lord. To discipline your soul not to be on high alert, not to be in a hurry, but just sit there in the traffic with me um, and ask God to meet you in that space. I mean, there's little things that we can do. If you're someone who struggles with cynicism, like I sometimes do, man, one of the disciplines I've found to be life-giving for me is I wake up in the morning and I make a list of three to five things that I'm grateful for. And what I've found is that gratitude is one of the ways that God has wired up to us to fight off cynicism. If you're an angry person, I would challenge you to write out blessing over people that you are angry with. These are ways that we can start to train for godliness like Paul wrote to Timothy. Now, um, every time I talk about spiritual practices, there's two types of people that are usually in the congregation. There's the type A people who are like, I I already have a plan to read the Bible from cover to cover tomorrow morning. I'm on it, Paulson, let's do this. End the sermon so I can get started, right? And then there's the person that's going, I'm not so sure. This sounds like legalism to me. And I think that those are the two sort of polarities. And I want to address both of those by calling out some of the ways that I think we misunderstand spiritual practices. Okay? So let me give you three ways that I just want to correct us back because we sometimes get off when it comes to spiritual practices. So spiritual practices first are about spirit. They're not about self. They're about spirit. They're not about self. Would you write down? The quest for transformation is not something that you do on your own. It is a partnership between you and God. But we start, we start with the recognition that the spirit of God lives inside of us. That God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That God has done his part and do his part. See, our problem is not access to the Spirit. Our problem is typically alignment with the Spirit of God. It's why the Apostle Paul will write to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 and he'll say, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, his good pleasure. We work out our salvation, but hear me, we do not work for our salvation. Those are two very different things. But I love the way that Paul sort of unpacks this dynamic. And I think what he says is that you can work it out because God's at work within. You can grow because you're not on your own. And God will meet you in this space as you posture your heart before him and say, I genuinely want to grow with you, Lord. Second way that we sometimes get it wrong, that this is about effort, but it's not about earning. It requires effort, but it's not about earning. I mean, look at Jesus's words again. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but then you don't do what I tell you to do? Like Jesus actually expects that you and I will put into practice the things that he said. That we'll learn to forgive our the people that wrong us, that we'll learn to love our enemies, that we'll bless those who curse us. But that's not easy of us. Can I get an amen? And so we have to put hard work into it. As Dallas willard so poignantly put, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. And he's just echoing the apostle Peter who wrote to the churches in 2 Peter chapter one. He said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort, make every effort, effort. And the reality is friends, we always put effort into things that we think are important. We always do. That's just part of being human. And so Jesus is saying, well, why don't you put effort into this? You don't you, it's not about earning. You already have it all. You're already the beloved. Like what what more do you need to earn? Nothing. It's all yours freely. Therefore, You can put effort into it without the thought of earning anything from God, but posturing your heart to receive what he's already pouring out. And I love the way that the great scholar D.A. Carson put it when he said this, and this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, and it's dangerous because it's cold, but I just want you to dial in, okay? Listen to what he said, it's brilliant. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, Faith and delight in the Lord. We tolerance, we drift towards faith, and towards sorry towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated apart from grace-driven effort, we drift, not more into the image of God, but further and further away from becoming the disciples that we long to become. Third, third, that Jesus calls his disciples to training, not to trying, to training, not to trying. And those are two very different approaches. Most of the time when we teach people about the way of Jesus, we tell people things like, well, you should try really hard to not be angry. You should try really hard to not be patient. You should try really hard to love your enemies. Try really hard. And then you know what happens? People try hard and they do what? They fail, right? And then we say, well, tomorrow just try hard again. And they fail again. And that isn't what Jesus is inviting, not trying. And there's a big difference. Let me give you an example. Here's a question for you. Could you play Beethoven on the piano? Could you play Beethoven on the piano? Your question back to me probably should be when? When? Because you might not be able to play it today. But what if I told you I'm gonna get you I'm gonna get you um, lessons, piano lessons, and then I'm gonna pay you to practice, okay? And the, for the next six months, I, I'm going to take care of it. Could you do it then? Maybe, maybe. But most of the time we teach discipleship, like try really hard. It's like telling somebody to go down and sit at the piano and, and try really hard to play Beethoven. Without any skills to be able to do it, like me, right? Try really, really hard. Oh. And then you fail and go... Okay, thank you, thank you. Tip jars right up here in case just afterwards you, if you so feel led, okay? Um, and they fail, right? And we tell, well, try hard again and then the next day they go. But what would it look like to actually, to actually train rather than just try? What would it look like to say, God, this is the kind of person I sense you leading me to become. What would it look like to take one little step today in that direction. Let me give you three things, that and we'll close these, about training that I think are really, really important to help bring some clarity to what we're talking about. Number one, training discipleship, however you want to phrase it, is always personalized. Would you write that down? Meaning that it's a journey that you are on. And because we're all different, our training will all look a little bit different. We're in different places. So discipleship should be customized, not systematized. Now, it will all involve many of the very similar types of um, endeavors, like reading the scripture and prayer and worship and silence and solitude and fasting, but God will meet us in different ways as we posture our souls before him based on who he's made us to be. It's always personalized, which is one of the reasons that knowing how God has created you is so important when it comes to becoming a disciple. Because as you know who you are, you'll know more fully how to grow and how to engage with God in his spirit and what he's doing in your life. Second, second, our training must address our pain. It must address our pain. There's some things that have happened in your life probably that will create a ceiling on your spiritual growth and your transformation unless you start to, unless you're able to name it and then walk through it with some people that you respect, and that you love. It's one of the reasons that I'm so grateful we have programs like Set Free here at Emmanuel Faith that meets every Friday night at 6.30, or Freedom in Christ and Truths that Transform. There's a ton of different ways that we're trying to help people engage their pain because we believe it's a part of the discipleship process. This is exactly what Jesus did with Peter in John chapter 21. He helped him engage his pain so that he could then start to move forward. It's also the reason that I'm a huge advocate for therapy and for counseling and for spiritual friendship and having people that surround you that you can walk through the pain of life with in an honest way as we confess our sins to one another, Jesus heals, Jesus heals. But it has to address our pain. And then finally, it's an ongoing process. So salvation is instantaneous, but transformation is a process and it's a messy process at that. I mean, listen to the way that the apostle Paul wrote it. He said in Philippians chapter three, verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. And every time I read that, I'm going, the apostle Paul hadn't arrived? And if he hadn't arrived, we probably won't arrive either. But that doesn't mean that we throw in the towel. And that doesn't mean that we give up. That just means that we live with the realization that transformation is a journey that we will be on for the rest of our lives. Beautiful journey. And it also means, you guys, please catch this. We're really close to the end. Please catch this. It also means that when we screw up, not if we screw up, but when we screw up, we should have abundant grace on ourselves and on the people around us. It means that when we screw up, we don't beat ourselves up. We already did that, right? We confess, we repent, and then we move forward training once again to become the kinds of people that Jesus is inviting us to become. It's personalized, it addresses our pain, and it's an ongoing process. I think one of the best ways to halt progress in the spiritual life is to be overly harsh on ourselves and to heap guilt when we fall short. God doesn't want to heap guilt. He wants to heap grace. Grace is what changes us, not guilt. Love the way that Jesus ends this story. Listen to it in verse 47. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against it and that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, he's like a man who built a house on ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Let let me just read this line again. Anyone who hears my words and does them, and does them. So let's just name tonight that Jesus is not looking for people to agree with him. He's not looking for people to applaud him. He's not looking for people just to listen to him. He's looking for people who will say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord and rabbi, and I wanna take what you've put, and what you've said, and I wanna train, to make it a part of my life. Because I believe you're right. I believe you're brilliant. I believe that you are God and that you know best. And I wanna posture my life under your teaching and under your lordship to walk and to learn how to live in your heart. So here's my question for you tonight. What would it look like for you to become that kind of a person? Would you close your eyes for just a moment and just imagine what might it be like to walk more and more free from anger, from bitterness, from an unwillingness to forgive? What might it look like to be free from that? What might it look like to be healed from past wounds maybe it's abuse that you've suffered or pain you've walked through gosh even right now i believe that jesus wants to touch you he wants to heal you i think he wants you to know that he sees you what would it look like to be a a person that's free to be generous <laughs> that's free to not compare yourself to the people around you It's free to have a hard conversation and to receive feedback. What would it look like to be that free? Because of his grace and mercy, Jesus is inviting you to train to take on his character, his life. It's not something you have to do on your own, but it is an invitation that's in front of you right now. So here's my question. What's Jesus saying to you? And what might it look Let me give you just a minute. And then we're gonna go to the communion table together. Would you ask him? so grateful that your love and grace find us exactly as we are and where we are. But that you love us enough not to leave us there. But That you want to change us and help us walk in the joy that you have for us for the glory of your name. So Lord, I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, would you just, would you speak right now? How are you inviting and challenging the people here? to grow more and more into your image. And then help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to get your communion elements out. What a joy it is to be able to celebrate the Lord's table together tonight. This table is open to all who are followers of Jesus. People are saying back to him, I wanna be one of your disciples. I wanna follow you as Lord and teacher. If that's not you, and I, not you tonight, I would just invite you to, to let these elements sort of pass you by to put them down and but if if you want to give your life to Jesus tonight it's really really easy you could just say back to him Jesus I want to trust you as Lord and teacher I want to give you my life I repent of my sin and I want to trust you as Lord and teacher and savior I give all I know of me to all I know of you would you come and live in my heart and teach me how to be one of your disciples if you say that you're one of his and he would invite you to come and to celebrate his death together. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took off his outer garment and he got down on his knee, went around and he washed his disciples' feet. And afterwards he said to his disciples, I've given you that you should do as I've done. Do, Do the same thing. The apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth and giving them instructions about the table, said, examine yourself. Before you go to this table, examine yourself. See if there's anything in your life that's out of alignment, relationships that are broken or ways that you're living that don't honor Jesus as king and turn from those and repent before you come to the table. So I'd invite you to do that. If there's anything you need to name to just do it right now. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which I'm giving for you. Do this of me. supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant which is made in my blood as long as you do this you proclaim my death until i come again let's proclaim together friends jesus thank you for your love for your sacrifice. We proclaim that you are king, that you are God, and that we are yours. Lord, we wanna live in your way with your heart. When people interact with us, we want the aroma of Christ to be all over us and it might get on them. Lord, help us To become more and more like you, to walk in your way with your heart, to receive your joy and to give glory to your name, the name above every name. We love you. It's in your name we pray.